For our morning service today, we have a brother that's been in the ministry for 32 years. Brother John Zoik is a minister and an elder from the Wycliffe Lake, New Jersey congregation. And he will be assisted this morning by Brother Bob Varga from Beverly Hills, Michigan. Brother John. And before we pray, I am still afraid after 32 years when approaching the pulpit. And I remember some few years after beginning in the ministry of begging the Lord to relieve me of the fear. And he answered me with what the same answer that the Apostle Paul got when he said, my strength is made perfect in weakness. And so I said, okay, Lord, I will be afraid because then I know what you want me to do is to lean harder upon you. And that is how we would like to approach his throne of grace now. Let us pray. O Lord, may all eyes be cast upon thee. Thou art the source of inspiration. Thou art the source of teaching. Thou art the source of eternal life. Lord, we would place our trust totally in thee, asking and expecting, Lord, because you have promised, that if we but entrust ourselves unto thee and ask for the help that's needed to feed the flock, that you would do so not only to those who would be listening, but to the speaker as well. So therefore, we thank thee, Lord, for this blessing in anticipation of receiving it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to read from the Gospel of John, according to John, the first chapter, which may sound familiar to you if you were listening last night. And as Brother Tim first read from Genesis, the first chapter, I thought, oh, what a good foundation upon which I can build for tomorrow. And then he read from the Gospel of John, which had also been given to me. And I thought, what more will the Lord give from this chapter? And I was thankful when he didn't read the first 14 verses, but just the first few. And I would like to read the first 14 verses and trust that the Lord will bless us with his uh, bread of life. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world... And the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the word was made flesh. And dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, 
full of grace and truth. What makes this word so powerful? When we think of who God is, and he has chosen to describe himself as the word, including the Son, with whom he had created all things, we find in it what goes behind a word which are the thoughts, the expressions of the Creator, the one who has made us. He identifies himself as the Word because he knows us, since we are made in his image, that thoughts, his expressions toward us, have a tremendous power, a tremendous effect. Even in the world, it says, the Word is mightier, the pen is mightier than the sword, indicating that expressions of people have even more power than physical might. How much more so when God declares himself and his son as being the word, the expressions, the desires, the thoughts that he would have, that he would give to us, not just as cognitive ideas, but through the person of himself when he became flesh and expresses himself to us in the ultimate sacrifice of going to the cross, shedding his blood, dying for us, that we could be united with him. He is the only way, the word tells us very clearly. And it's interesting, I had... It's interesting as we read the Word of God many times over how it seems as though some words lift themselves off the page that we didn't quite even think about all that much before. And if you go into the 14th verse, in parentheses or in brackets, it says, And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Was it because He was such a handsome, charismatic being that, that people that John would write that we beheld his glory and the glory as of the only begotten of the Father? We, it must not be as artists would try to depict this, this very handsome man uh, that we see in artists' depictions as, as, uh, which are really contrary to what Scripture says. Because if we go back to Isaiah, Isaiah 53, 2 and 3 says, But he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground, a dry ground, he hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. So it wasn't his, his physical attributes that, that drew John to draw these words out and say, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. It is because of both what Jesus said and who he is. Christ expressed himself to the disciples. They heard his message, and they saw then a consistency between what he said and what he lived, and it was powerful. It had an impact on those 
who were able to humble themselves, to recognize their lost condition, who were able to recognize that they were doomed to condemnation, to hell. And here the Savior and the Lord came into their lives, expressing the way that they could become God's children. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. As a result of the grace of God, people are now able, by simple childlike faith, are able to grasp the truths of what he said, even though they may not fully understand them, but by faith to be able to grasp them. And by faith in what Christ has done. John wrote this after Christ's death and resurrection. And in reflecting upon all of what had taken place, he recalled the words that Jesus said, the message that he imparted, and he wants to summarize it in very simple terms of the need to allow Christ, to have Christ, to invite Christ to come into our lives by, that by faith in his atoning shed blood and by repentance of sins that have caused him to go to the cross, that they're able to have eternal life. I'd like to contrast what John saw later in the book of Revelation chapter 1. A year ago, my wife and I were privileged to be on the island of Patmos. And they showed us a cave that they said where John could have been, or maybe a cave like this, where he received this revelation. And there was nothing special about the cave. They, they built a, a chapel around the outside of it. But the cave itself was kept simple, just as an ordinary cave, and perhaps it was a cave very much like that when John saw much more than just a barren cave. If I could read from verse 10 in chapter 1, John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, meaning that he was, had been meditating and was open to hear what God would speak to his heart. And we would assume because he says it's the Lord's day, the first day of the week. And heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet, saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what thou seest, write in a book. These are the words of Christ. And send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, and unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me. And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, 
I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not. I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. Can you put yourself in the place of John, who had followed Christ for three years while he was in the flesh, and had embraced the message that Jesus had given? He was especially close, the Bible gives us indication. He even refers to himself as the one whom Jesus loved when he writes his gospel, not referring to his name personally. But we have the indication clearly that this was the same John who now is beholding the risen, glorified Christ. And we can see, rightly so, his response even though he had loved the Lord and was close to him, even having laid in his bosom and had received such comforting words while he, Jesus was yet alive upon this earth. And now, whom does he see but the risen, glorified Christ? And what does he have coming out of his mouth? A sword, a two-edged sword, which is able to cut and divide the bone and the marrow, coming right from wrong, making clear what God has in mind for everyone who does not believe. Just the, the vision of what, Christ, of what John saw of this glorified Christ made him crumble to the earth, and he fell as one who was dead out of fear. And then we see this comforting hand of this glorious being resting upon him and saying, Fear not. I am the one. I am that first and last. I am he that lives. I was dead, but I am resurrected. I am alive. I am not only resurrected, I am ascended into heavens, interceding for the believers. I am alive forevermore, eternally. And he inserts the word, Amen. So be it. But he also adds, and have the keys of hell and of death. The evil one knows that his time is short. And within my relatively brief lifetime compared to history, I have seen how he is trying in very cunning, subtle ways as never before to cause confusion, disturbance, lack of unity among the brethren so that he can have whatever victory he can over those who are yet lost in sin. And so the message is twofold this morning, echoing some of the comments made last night of brethren, how important it is for us to realize what our primary function is after we are converted. It is to grow up in Him, to grow deeper in Him, to grow in depth that we might be able, by His grace, to be used as tools in His hands to further the gospel by not only what people hear us say and hear what the Bible said, but that they can see the evidence of it alive in us who have been born again of water and of spirit. And while that 
is very important that we carry out this charge that's given to us to both edify the body of Christ because it says, by your love shall all men know that you are my disciples, but also that we would carry out the reaching out to the lost with an increased fervor, that we would set our priorities straight and to those who are yet without Christ as Lord and Savior, even when and if we fail, or even if and when we fail, you have no excuse. You have the Word. You have the Word that was made flesh, the only begotten Son who came upon the earth for the purpose of giving us truth, for the purpose of giving us himself as sacrifice for sins. And the instruction that he gives is the same today as it was when it was first written. But as many as received him, that is, to ask Jesus where we have failed, where we have tried to make ourselves better, where we have made efforts to, to improve ourselves and, 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 and run into the frustration, the wall of frustration, where we find ourselves, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 7, the good that I would, I could not, and the evil that I didn't want to do, that I did. Oh, wretched man that I am. And we, we, we find ourselves echoing this same call. Who will free me from the body of this death? The answer is Jesus. We need to have him come into our lives. We need to have him be alive in us, through us, to give us the power to be able to overcome. Because it says, as many as received him to them gave he. It's, just, it's a given. This is something that is the word of God that says, is to be understood and grasped in faith to become the sons of God. It is a process that doesn't happen in most cases that I know of, instantaneously. We see how it happened in the life of the Apostle Paul, who, who was struggling, trying to do the right thing, even to the point of even persecuting the church of God, until he finally is struck down. And it says, the word spoke directly to him. Jesus spoke to him. The word that had become flesh spoke to him directly. Saul, Saul, it is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. The, the goads that were happening in his life where he thought he was doing good, and when he felt these goads, he would think, well, maybe I should just go ahead and try a little bit harder, not knowing the truth, until finally he comes broken and says, and gives in, gives up, and embraces the Christ, who art thou, Lord, whom I, so that I may serve you? That is the same kind of a condition of heart that you who need to know him as Lord and Savior need to come. Who are you, Lord? Who are you that I, that I may become your child? And he will reveal himself. He will enlighten. It's like turning on the light in a dark room. He will enlighten you so that you will understand specifically how much you need the faith in his shed blood to be able to wash away the sins which you now become aware of. And what do you feel? What's the natural impulse 
of one who has a desire to become a child of God. We see our sins. We feel godly sorrow about them. We have a need to be able to live differently. And yet, we don't have the strength of ourselves. So we reach out to him. We invite him in. And he gives us the power to become, to become the child of God that he wants us to be. What does it take on our part? Simple, childlike faith. Remember the time when Jesus gave the example of, of the little children. The disciples didn't want the children to be bothering Christ. And he said, suffer the little children to come unto me. Allow the children to come to me. And I envision him sitting perhaps on a rock and, and having, as, as I do my, my grandchildren, sit on my lap. And, and, and I see them looking up into my face and saying, Papa, is that not the way Jesus embrace the little children, and he says, unless you become like this, with the true affection, without guile, without a lot of intellectual garbage, without any preconceived notions, but just simple trust that the one on whose lap they were sitting feel comfortable, that he is the one who will tell them something or perhaps show them something that they want to hear. Jesus wants us in the same childlike faith to embrace him, to listen to what he wants to speak to us, to be anxious and ready without reservation. Number one priority, Lord, speak to my heart that I can do your will, that I can be changed, that I can be cleansed, that I can understand the, the, the great difficulties that I have caused to myself, to my parents, to my friends, because of my sin. Lord, let these sins be brought to the foot of the cross that your blood can wash over them, that they can be put into the sea of forgetfulness to be remembered no more, and that I can have the power, the strength to live differently. This is what God's will is for you and for me every one of us. It is not his will that any should be lost. It is not his desire that any should be lost. And yet, what has he given to us? The availability of the grace so that we can choose and not much more. The availability of the grace that we can have faith in him, trust in him, and not much more. Because not much more is needed other than this simple, very simple, childlike faith and trust in him that he will lead us through the traffic of life. Are you afraid of Jesus? I didn't ask, do you fear him? There is the godly fear that our lessons will hopefully unfold in our understanding as we would go along. But are you afraid of Jesus? Allow him, as the Apostle John did, to put his hand on your shoulder. Listen to what he says when he says, Fear not, I have the keys, he is saying, of hell and of death. I have control over this, even though Satan would like to pretend and give the pretense that he is in control. Allow him to be able to embrace you into his bosom. 
Allow him to be your friend, your savior, your Lord. Allow him to be the son of God in your life, in your body. Allow him to give you that lively hope of eternal life. Allow him to recognize so that you can recognize that he is the Lord, the Son of God, God himself, come in the flesh, who has expressed these words personally to you. This is not a sermon to the masses. It's a word that Jesus is now using to prick your heart that you might be able to recognize that he is speaking personally to you, individually to you. It isn't the same as in the Old Testament time when he, when he was, during this time of the dispensation of the law, was concerned about preserving his word through a nation. Now with the coming of Christ, he individualizes his call to every single one within the hearing of that still, small voice that would say, Come unto me, ye that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. May God bless his word.